This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. All right, folks. If you guys are able to, I want to invite you to remain standing for the reading of the Word of God. And um, I, have, uh, I have today for you guys Isaiah chapter 13 through 14, verse 23. And so it's going to be the whole chapter 13 and 23 verses of of 14. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's on the screen. So uh, please follow along. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. On a bare hill, raise a signal. Cry aloud to them. Wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned, summoned my mighty men to execute my anger. My proudly exulting ones. The sound of a tumult of a tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude, the sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place. The world will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And like a hunted gazelle, or like sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people, and each will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be thrust through, and whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered, and their wives ravished. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them, who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. In Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor, uh, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. But wild animals will lie down there, and their houses will be full of howling creatures. Their ostriches will dwell, and their wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers, and jackals in the pleasant places. Its time is close at hand, and its days will not be prolonged. For the Lord of Jacob, for the Lord will have compassion on Jacob, and will again choose Israel, and will set them in their own land, and sojourners will join them, and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And the peoples will take them and bring them bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who are their captors and rule over those who oppress them. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, 
you will take you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of, of rulers that struck the peoples and that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you, the cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. Shoal beneath, it, Shoal beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you, all who were leaders of the earth. It raises from their, it raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations. All of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Shoal. The sound of your harps, maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high but you are brought down to Shoal, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you are cast out away from your grave like a loathed branch, Clothed with, clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit, like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial, because you have destroyed your land. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers never more be named. Prepare slaughter for his sons, because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth and fill the face of the world with cities." I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and will cut off from Babylon name and remnant, descendants and posterity, declares the Lord. And I will make it a possession of the hedgehog and pools of water, and I will sweep it within the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Everyone remembers where we left off in the end of December, right? From the first 12 chapters of Isaiah. Uh, uh, even if you did remember, the last thing that Ben was talked about was the, the root of Jesse, uh, the, the kingdom of God coming and and it was, chapter 12 was actually like a, a celebration. It was a, it was a song. There was rejoicing. And then all of a sudden we get what, uh, what Tim just read. And it makes it, uh, it's a little bit of a whiplash, even if you're just reading through, reading straight through the book of Isaiah. So it, if, you, if you don't remember, it's, uh, uh, it's just as sort of shocking as you're walking through the story to, to hear all the sort of good news from chapter 12 and then to immediately jump in uh, to this kind of big section on the, on the judgment 
that comes on Babylon or, or, or God's wrath that's poured out on the city, Babylon. And so I thought it would be helpful just to jump to maybe chapter one of Isaiah real quick. Chapter one is almost like the, the, the Wikipedia page of the whole book. Uh, so if you want to get a summary of all 66 chapters, you can, you can take a look at chapter one. Uh, and, and maybe just for a little bit of perspective, by the time we're finished with this second part of Isaiah, we will have covered as much ground in scripture as almost the entire two years it took us to get through Matthew. So Isaiah is just a, is just a mammoth book. Um, and, and, and we're going through a ton of material. So we're gonna, we're gonna take kind of broad strokes as we, as we go through this prophet. Um, and that's sort of what we did in our last series. We did about 10 weeks on the first 12 chapters. I think we've got seven or eight weeks um, on the next 13 or 14 chapters. So we're gonna just take kind of broad strokes as we, as we walk through the book of Isaiah. But, but just for a refresher, in chapter one, Verse two, he says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Which I feel like is one of the most like savage insults in all of the Bible. Um, the donkey and the ox know better than my very own children. And he starts off this gigantic book and in part one, we called it our image problem because he starts off this gigantic book saying, my people, the people that I love, the people that are my children, the people that I rescued out of slavery, don't even recognize me as their heavenly father. So we're saying that the, the people, people had an image problem. They looked more like everyone around them than the, than the father who they were meant to resemble. So we, we talked about our 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 image problem in, in part one, and we talked about how that God was gonna be the one to resolve that image problem. And if you kind of look forward a little bit in verses 24 and 25 in chapter one, again, kind of an overview of the whole book of Isaiah. It says, therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you, talking to his people, I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove your alloy. So, so right there, the prophet is saying, look, my people have an image problem. <clears throat> and I have this picture throughout Isaiah of Jerusalem, a city, the city where God dwells with his people, the people that don't even recognize the fact that it's their, it's their heavenly father dwelling with them there. So he says, I'm gonna take this city and I'm gonna destroy it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring my, my wrath and, and melt away the dross. Uh, it's like a, a picture of refining this, 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 this wrath that's poured out on, on his city, Jerusalem. Yeah, so we're, we're talking about the image problem. We're talking about how God bring, pours out wrath on Jerusalem. And, and he actually, there's this picture of Jerusalem being destroyed. And then, the, then it comes back and Jerusalem is all of a sudden is called a faithful city. We go from a city where God's people dwell with God and they don't look like God, they don't recognize their heavenly father to a faithful city where God's people image God and look like him and are in the very presence of God. And so we, we talked about this in our, in our last series which is our image problem is ultimately solved by the death and resurrection of Christ. By, by the death and resurrection of the true son, 
the true son that perfectly recognized and imaged his father and was raised up. So he's raised up in this, in this heavenly Jerusalem now. He's raised up in this heavenly Jerusalem. So, so now the church, now us, are, we're united to him. So the dwelling place of God with the people of God is now the community of God everywhere. The, 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 the faithful city is everyone who's united to Christ, who, who is seated in the, in the heavenly places in Christ, and now God dwells with us. God literally dwells in us through the Holy Spirit. And that's kind of what Hebrews picks up on in, in 12.22. It should be on the screen, so you don't have to totally flip there. But in verse 22, the author to Hebrews says, but, but you have come. He uses a, a past tense. He says, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So, so the whole sort of emphasis on part one is now that we have the death and the resurrection of Christ, now that we have the, the perfect image of the perfect son risen up in the heavenly places, seated on the throne, now that we're united to him, you and I get to enjoy the very presence of God as we gather as the people of God. We are already past tense in that heavenly Jerusalem. So that was sort of, that was sort of part one of our, of our Isaiah series, uh, this idea of our image problem. And, and one of the things that we said is we, we, we went to 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1. It's another one that'll be up on the screen. I think this is a really important passage just to sort of remind ourselves of before we jump into this kind of crazy section about judgment on Babylon. We said at the beginning, we said all of these things that the prophets spoke, the, the fact that Isaiah wrote something 2,700 years ago, give or take. Um, the fact that he wrote something that long ago was actually written down for your instruction. Like the, the whole book of Isaiah isn't about a city that nobody lives at that's in the middle of Iraq right now. The whole book of Isaiah isn't about a country on the other side of the globe. The whole book of Isaiah is intentionally written for your instruction. Inten intentionally written for us. And that's what First Peter says. He's, he, he mentions the salvation that came through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And in verse 10, he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied, Isaiah being one of those prophets, about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully. And they were inquiring what time or person the spirit of Christ was in them, indicating when he predicted in, these, in the prophecies, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And, and this is what's most fascinating about this passage is it says that it was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were not, that they were serving not themselves, but you. They were serving not themselves or their own time, but they were serving you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So I just, I, I want to emphasize that, that as we, as we wrestle with what it means or what it doesn't mean or why this or why that, and we go through these just different judgment passages in Isaiah, at the end of the day, we have to believe what God said in 1 Peter, that the prophets wrote what we just read down for you. And I feel like that's kind of hard to believe. And I hope as we went through the first kind of section and talked about our image problem, you're you, you, you begin to see that there's actually things in the book of Isaiah that are important for us today, that actually make a difference in our lives right now. 
And so that leads us to sort of our next major section. We're, we're, calling, it, we're calling it his presence in his judgments. His presence in his judgments. And I, and I, I want badly, and the thing that I'm praying for as we work through this series, is I want really badly for every single one of you, for, for Emmaus as a whole, for myself, honestly, to be able to sense and experience and enjoy the very presence of God. Because if, if we're already seated in the heavenly places, if, if we have the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, truly dwelling inside of us, how often do we really feel that? How often does that influence what we do or, or, or how we deal with suffering or, or even how often does that influence the, the, the presence of a holy God just bring me joy and bring me peace. So as I, as I thought about this series, I was like, I really want to focus on as a, as a community, how do we actually experience the joy and the wonder and the presence of God? And I, I think this is one of those things that's sort of hard to sort of make tangible. And, and, and I want you to stop for a second and say, when was the last time, when was the last time you really felt the presence of God? Now. Amen. <laughs> when was the last time you, you really had joy rooted in something that's not in this world, but in the fact that God legitimately lives inside of you? And, I, and that's right. And I think, I think about even as I worship, sometimes, and I, I've had conversations with people, sometimes just getting to sing in worship is, is one of those times for some of you and for myself at different times where you do just feel the presence of God. You're comforted by that. You're encouraged by that. Sometimes some of the conversations I've had, uh, there's, a, there's a good sermon you listen to, um, usually when Cole or Ben gets up here and you're... And you're <laughs> And your heart is stirred and, and, you're, and you're taking communion and you're considering the things that the Lord has done and you're resting in the forgiveness that you have in the, in the, in the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And there's, there's those moments where you're, you're considering God and in a very real and different way, you sense the presence of God. And I think as I, as I prayed for myself, as I prayed for our community, I desire more than anything for us to sense the presence of God. The gospel is good news. Jesus is so beautiful because he brings us to our father. He doesn't just transform us so we can look better and be nicer than everybody else. He transforms us so we can be in the presence of a holy God. So you might be asking then, um, if you're not, I'll just say, what do God's judgments have to do with his presence. Seems like, seems almost counterintuitive. That does not seem very comforting. And I think a lot of the reason why we think that is we have a little bit different, when we think judgment, we think of like wrath. We think of like fire and brimstone. And I, and I think there are some aspects to that for sure. But if you, if you look on Google, you can put it up on the screen, Jesse. The, the first definition for judgments is the ability to make considered decisions or come to sensible conclusions. The ability to make considered decisions or come to sensible conclusions. 
And when I, when I think of the, the judgments of God, I think we should first start with God is discerning. God is, God is speaking on something that's considered and thoughtful and true. God, God is giving us a view of the world and saying, just so you know, as the creator, I am sharing my judgment about how I see the world, how I see you, how I see those around you, how I see my son. So if we're to better understand who God is, if we're to better understand and experience who God is, then I really want his judgments to help us understand who he is so that as a community, we can just experience him more and more. And so that maybe it's not about necessarily the perfect song or the perfect sermon or the perfect moment where I experience the presence of God. Maybe it's about Tuesday afternoon when I'm just overwhelmed with the peace he's given me because he dwells in me. Maybe it's at four in the morning when someone's crying <laughs> and all I want to do is go back to sleep. That the presence of God is something that comforts me and encourages me because I've considered I've, I've taken it into account all the judgments that God has made on the world so I know him better and be, can be closer to him. So that's kind of what I want about part two of our series. I want us to really consider as we walk through these 13 or 14 chapters in Isaiah and say, what is God speaking about? What is God speaking about and discerning that's to me and that's to you, that's what Peter says, that helps me know who he is so that I could really benefit from and enjoy the very presence of God. And I think honestly, that's impossible without the work of the spirit, uh, especially in this passage as we just read. <laughs> so let's pray. Let's ask the spirit to reveal Christ to us and, and we'll, we'll sort of jump into this, this first major judgment of God as he discerns for us what, what Babylon is uh, and how we should think about those things. So let's pray. Dear heavenly father, I thank you that you are so patient with us. I thank you that, like, like the song says, even when we don't feel it, you are working. Um, but we shouldn't stop there and say, we don't wanna feel your presence, Lord. Um, I thank you so much that your work in your kingdom in, in so many ways depends on your king and not on us. But Lord, we plead with you. Lord, we're, we humble ourselves and say, help us know you better through your judgments. Help us love you and embrace you and sense you because of what your son has done. So I thank you for this morning and I pray that you would just give me some clarity as we walk through a, a bunch of scripture. And, and Lord, I pray that it would just be useful through your spirit, uh, convicting us and encouraging us. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so let's just start on verse one here since we easily got lost after all of that. Um, and when we go through big sections of scripture like this, I feel like I say it all the time, but something about my upbringing just makes me wanna like say it again because you could never like skip a line if you were preaching, that was like heresy. Um, so when we go through giant sections of scripture like this, we're gonna kind of hit some of the high points and just try to follow what's going on. We're not gonna hit every little thing. Um, but I think GC is a really good opportunity. If you're like, man, what in the world was that all about? Um, talk to your GC. It's a good place to have that discussion. Um, if you're curious about anything in particular, and someone, anyone that comes to me is like, Aaron, I was reading this verse. I wonder what this means. That's like the most exciting conversation probably Cole and I could both have. So, so if you have any questions about any of this stuff, you're welcome to, to come and chat with us. But let's just start in, in verse one. He says, the oracle concerning Babylon, 
which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. And when I, when I think about this, I'm like, okay, we have a prophecy or an oracle. We have God speaking on Babylon. And I'm like, I don't even know where in the world Babylon was, like, or is, if that's the, and apparently it's not that far from Baghdad in Iraq or something. It's, it's, there's not a whole lot going on there anymore, um, but it was a huge giant city, kind of wonder of the world. And you had, a, you had empires uh, that raised up and fell that sort of centered around this, this city, Babylon. So it was, a, it was a pretty significant city. And Emily shaking her head, yes, yeah, she does history. So, so I must be onto something here. It's a pretty significant city in the ancient world. So we have this oracle about this super significant city that is not significant anymore. So, so I'm asking the question, well, if this was a prophecy that was written down for me, if this is a prophecy that was written down for you, how does this apply? What does this matter? What is God trying to help me understand with this prophecy about Babylon? And one of the passages I thought was really helpful, it's just maybe just a clue, is in chapter 14, verse 29, he's talking about another nation that in the, the flow of the story, Israel's like kind of freaked out about. Assyria is gonna, gonna wreck everybody. And God says, you know what? Assyria is gonna wreck everyone. Judgment is gonna come up to the neck. So a lot of people are gonna be exiled away, but Jerusalem will be saved. And then because of the pride of the Assyrian king's heart, I'm gonna judge Assyria on top of that. So we have this like, we have these sort of like wars going on and Israel's kind of freaking out and God talks about his judgment on Assyria and everyone's like, oh sweet, Assyria's kind of the pain in my side. God's gonna take out Assyria, I'm fine with that. And Philistia, which is not a Christian or not a, uh, a nation that would, would be uh, committed to Yahweh, is excited that God is gonna get rid of Assyria because Assyria's kind of a pain in everyone's side. And, it says, and so he says, rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod that struck you is broken. This is Assyria. For from the serpent's root will come forth an adder and its fruit will be a flying, fiery serpent. From the serpent's root will come a dragon. And I think about that. And we are just, just the last sermon that, I should've just went back and listened to Ben's sermon. The last sermon that Ben talked about in, in, in uh, the end of December was about another root. God would chop off, fell, I think is the word, all the trees, but out of that, would the, the root of Jesse would come and a king would raise up. So we have this idea that there's gonna be this, this wonderful king that restores everything for God's people. And, it's, and again, we talked about in part one, that's the death and resurrection of Christ. So now we have an enemy, another root related to a serpent that's destroyed and out comes a dragon. So it's just one of those clues to say, what are we talking about when we're talking about Babylon? Why would Babylon be associated with a serpent and with a dragon? And those are just little clues as we think about what this means in scripture. Look at, um, look at what he says. We get another clue just in chapter 13. Let's see what verse did I put up there? Verse four, that's a good one to start at. Um, Look at verse four, we get another clue that what is Babylon? What, why is this significant for us today? It's not just that there's a, this snake and serpent imagery. He says, the sound of a tumult is on the mountains, which is just a, a big crowd making a noise. You can hear them far off. 
um, makes me think of Lord of the Rings. As, great, as, a, as of a great multitude, the sound of an uproar of kingdoms. There's this large sort of expansive language here of nations gathering together. So it's, a, it's an oracle about Babylon, but now we're talking about kingdoms and nations. And he says, the Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens. So there's this, again, this expansive language that's used here. The Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. It says, wail for the day of the Lord is near. It's destruction from the Almighty, it will come. And then in seven, we get another one of these sort of expansive, this is an oracle about Babylon, but it says, therefore all hands will be feeble, all hands, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and destroy its sinners from it. And now we get some more sort of big expansive language. He says, for the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. And we get a huge statement right here. This is an oracle about Babylon. And he says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. So if we're asking, well, what is Babylon and what does it have to do with me? It's connected to a snake and a dragon. When God's judgment comes, it's, it's, it's worldwide. This, is this, this punishment that's coming on Babylon is not a city necessarily that's being punished. It's this worldwide thing. And the other thing, we, the other sort of clue we get is what is Babylon all about? Like, what, do we, what, what, do we, what is God saying? What God's giving us a judgment on Babylon. What is Babylon all about? And in verse 11 says evil, right? Babylon is all about evil. Uh, it says iniquity. And he says, I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Pomp, we don't use that word enough nowadays. But it's just, it's just this outward extra show of pride. Like it, Babylon is all about how great it is. Babylon is all about the, 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 the boastful pride of life, all about evil. And he, even it says in verse 19, it says in Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and the pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. So as we're trying to make sense of this prophecy, as we're trying to say, what does this have to do with me? Babylon apparently is associated with a serpent. Babylon is not just a city problem in, in, in the ancient world. It's a, it's a worldwide thing that God is gonna destroy. And Babylon is known for its pride and its accomplishments. So as we, as we get those little hints, God is telling us that Babylon is, has everything to do with all of our pride and all of our accomplishments in this world. Babylon has everything to do with every seeking after of salvation, every seeking after of fulfillment, everything to do with everything in the world that keeps us from enjoying the very presence of God. Babylon is the thing that keeps us from enjoying the very presence of God. And, I, and it's interesting, this word Babylon comes up in Isaiah, but it also comes up in Genesis 11. You're probably familiar with the, the Tower of Babel, and that word for Babel and the word for Babylon in Hebrew is the exact same word. They're just different cities. So we 
we say them a little differently and there's some contextual reasons for that too. But, but it's not a coincidence that the Tower of Babel has some of the same issues that Babylon does in, in Isaiah. Look at verse uh, four in, in Genesis 11. It says, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city in a tower with its tops in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Let us make a name for ourselves. So Babylon in Genesis, Babylon in Isaiah is all about the pride and accomplishment of, the, of humankind. It's all about making their way up to the heavens on their own terms. It's all about accomplishing everything that they want to accomplish, but not the way the Lord wants it to be accomplished. And for us, for believers, Babylon has everything to do with what keeps us from enjoying the very presence of God. Babylon is what keeps us from enjoying the very presence of God. And that flip wouldn't be a, a good sermon about Babylon without going all the way to Revelation because um, this, this, comes up, this comes up a lot. Um, but just look at a few verses in, in chapter 18. Look at the first three verses. It says, after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice. He says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast, which is another way of saying a dwelling place for these things. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passions of her sexual morality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, with Babylon. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Babylon is everything that mankind is proud about. Babylon is everything that the world props up and says, this is the way of salvation. This is the way to find peace. And, and, and for the believer, Babylon is everything that gets in the way of our enjoyment of the, of the real and wonderful presence of God. I like what, it's not on the screen, but later Babylon speaks out loud in, in Revelation and says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, in mourning I shall never see. And the very next verse is, for this reason her plagues will come in a single day. But this idea of Babylon being all about pride, being all about accomplishments is something that, that comes up and, is, and I think what God is trying to tell us God is using this image of this city, this glorious city from the ancient times, using the city, this image of even the Babylon in Genesis or the Babylon in Revelation. And he's saying, I am pronouncing my judgment on the things that I'm telling you right now, the things that keep you from enjoying me, the things that keep you from really appreciating the presence of God are everything in this world that brings pride and faith and the accomplishments of all the things around us. And if we think about that, if we think about this idea that Babylon is about our pride and our accomplishments, how is, how is Jerusalem built? Through the humiliation, through the humiliation of our king, and through through trusting the Lord in his accomplishments. The microphone things. So it's like, all right, well, Aaron, you just said that Jesus solved everything. You just said that that if I am in Christ, then the, the new Jerusalem is, is here. And if I'm in Christ and we, we worship in the, in the heavenly places, so good, I don't live in Babylon. 
don't have to, I don't have to worry about that. And I think that, I think that that's, there's some truth to that. If we're united to Christ, it's 100% true that we, we are in the heavenly places and that we, can, we have joy and peace with our fellowship with God and that we're united to Christ, the, the perfect image bearer. But as I thought about that, I was like, well, we may not have any property in Babylon. Most of us are fine staying the weekend or getting like an Airbnb in this particular area where we're, we're, we're about our pride or we're about our accomplishments in this world. And I thought about that as, do we think about those things as something that keeps me from the presence of God? Like when's the last time you went to someone and said, you know what, I was wrong. I wanna step forward in, in humility and say, I was actually wrong. Because I believe that if I am going to look like my savior, I believe I'm gonna dwell in Jerusalem, enjoy the presence of God, then pride and accomplishments are actually the things that keep me from enjoying that. That's tough. We don't think that way. How, how much time do we spend in a given week maybe just spinning about how we can get to the next place in our job? Or just, or just thinking about what, what, what can I do to ensure that I have security and, and safety or, or a particular bank account in this world or, or a house? And, and these are all, all, all good things that God has gifted us with. But when this is where our head goes, when this is where we're swirling around, when this is where we spend most of our time and our thoughts, we're basically just hanging out in Babylon, asking why we don't experience and why we don't enjoy more of the presence of the Lord. I mean, is it a coincidence that when we worship on Sundays when we feel his presence more? Is it a coincidence when we hear the word speak and we stop and we dwell on it as we take communion is when we feel and experience his presence more? God is trying to warn us. God isn't upset with a particular city and a particular nation. And there is an aspect to that. But this prophecy is for us so that we see that the things of the world, the things that lead to pride in our own accomplishments are ultimately what takes us away from the joy and the beauty and the wonder of the presence of God. And I appreciate where Isaiah goes in, verse four, in chapter 14, verse one, he, he brings us back to the gospel. And we just had like this huge chapter of judgment on Babylon. He says, for the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. That's crazy. This is a tiny little family. He even uses the word Jacob. He doesn't even wanna make you think Israel at first. This is a tiny little family he says, the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and sojourners will join themselves, will join themselves to Jacob. This is just a, another example of how the Old Testament was looking forward to what Christ would do. You and I worshiping today are the sojourners who have joined ourselves to Jacob. The Lord has compassion on you and compassion on me and wants us to, to enjoy his presence because of everything that Jesus has done and we have joined ourselves to him. He is the greater Israel. He is the greater Jacob. And that's, that's why we get to enjoy the very presence of God. And he says an interesting thing in the second verse. It says, and the peoples will, the peoples will take them and bring them to their place and the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captives, those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. And I hear that and I'm like, oh, well, do we join ourselves to Jacob or are we their slaves? 
How do we like make sense of what's going on here? And, and I thought of a couple of things. The New Testament talks about slavery in a positive sense in a couple of different ways. And before you think I'm a little bit crazy, Jesus introduces his letters by saying, I am a slave of Christ. You and I were very much enemies of God. You, at some point in our life, you and I were very much had our roots in Babylon and were enemies of Christ and wanted nothing more than to experience the very presence of God or anyone else for that matter. And now that we've united ourselves to Christ, now that Christ has, has connected us with him through the Holy Spirit, we're actually, we are actually his slaves. In, in, a, in a wonderful way, we serve our king with joy because he's compassionate, because he's gracious, because we believe that the gospel is beautiful. So we serve our king with joy. And another way that Paul brings up slavery that I think is equally as important, now that, we're, now that the Lord has had compassion on Jacob, now that he has been risen up, he talks about buffeting our bodies and making it our slaves. And, it, and it's in the context of sin. We shouldn't hand our members over to, to, to sin. God has actually given us the power. God has actually given us through the Holy Spirit the ability to make sin, in a sense, our slave. And it's tough when you're struggling with it to think that that's, that's there, but this is the, the beauty and the wonder of the gospel is that God has equipped you with his presence, with the second person of the Trinity, so for the very fact that you could be transformed and make the ultimate enemy, sin, Satan, and death, have, have it subjected to you because you are in Christ. And he, he talks about the, the, the judgment on Babylon. He talks about the gospel in chapter 14 at the beginning there. And then he goes on to basically make fun of the ruler of Babylon. He goes on to basically make fun of the ruler of Babylon. And I, I like the quote um, from Martin Luther. Uh, if you're gonna bring that up on the screen, Jesse, then I can, oh, there it is. It's all tiny over there. Cool. <laughs> I feel like Martin Luther must have been thinking of this passage when he said this. He says, the best way to drive out the devil if he will not yield to texts of scripture is to jeer and flout him for he cannot bear scorn. And look at, look at verse three. It says, when the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. You'll take up this taunt against the, the serpent that became the dragon. How the, oppressor, how the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased. And what's the result of this, this oppressor that ceased? Verse seven and eight says, the whole earth is at rest and quiet and they break forth into singing. The cypress rejoice at you, the cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. He's talking about the fact that there's so much peace in Israel. There's so much peace in the, in, in the land where God dwells that, that the trees are growing, don't even have to be cut down as used for weapons of war. And he goes on and he says in verse 10, all of them will answer you. Again, talking to this, this king of Babylon, you too have become as weak as we, you have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, which is like the grave, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms are your covers. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. 
I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. He looks at this, this ruler, this ruler of Babylon, who wants to put himself above God with all his pride and with all his accomplishments. And he says, you know what? When God accomplishes redemption, you might as well just make your maggot bed ready for you. Because there's nothing you can do. And I think this, I think, and we'll look at a passage in Luke, but I really think that this is pointing us towards the way, the way that uh, Paul says that we're not fighting against flesh and blood, we're fighting against the prince of the powers of the air. There's a sense that in a real sense, Satan is our enemy. In a real sense, he is the one behind the pride of the nations. He's the one behind the, the building of Babylon in, in, in Genesis. He's the one behind building of Babylon in, in Isaiah. And he's ultimately the one that's behind all of our desires to find our rest and our peace in all the things in this world and in ourselves and not in God himself. Look what Jesus says in, in Luke, Luke 10. Starting in verse 17, this is uh, Jesus kind of sends all his disciples out on like a practice mission um, before his death and resurrection. And they come back and the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, this is fascinating. He said, I, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus is talking about the fall of Satan in the past tense. And there's some, there's some questions kind of around what this means. But it's, 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 there's a lot of people that find, find some uniqueness and, and connectivity to this between the, what Jesus does in the desert when Satan tempts him and what Adam does in the garden when Satan tempts him. Who wins and takes over in the garden? Satan does. And when Jesus comes to earth and Satan tempts him with all the kingdoms of the world, when Jesus comes to earth and starves himself and is, is tempted to doubt God and to not trust in the, the words of God, Jesus stomps on the head of that serpent and, and renders him powerless. Now we have, now we have the king that, that been preached about in chapters 11 and 12 showing up, rendering Satan powerless and before he goes to the cross, taking on the punishment that we deserve and raising again and pouring out this life-giving spirit that we talked about in 1 Corinthians. Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you now authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing that shall hurt you. And serpents and scorpions are a really common way to talk about sort of demonic forces uh, in the New Testament. He says, nevertheless, and this is my favorite part. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He's like, do not rejoice that Satan is gonna lay in his little maggot bed for his rebellious pride and everything he tried to do. Rejoice in the reality that you now get to experience the very presence of God. Rejoice in the reality that I've been resurrected from the dead so that you can enjoy and soak in and appreciate the wonder and the glory of your creator in a way that Satan ruined it for everybody. 
And he's encouraging us and saying, I have conquered him. I have seated myself on the heavenly throne. I have built this new Jerusalem that all of Isaiah is talking about. And now today I'm warning you, don't get caught up in Babylon. Don't get caught up in pride. Don't get caught up in all the things of the world that distract you from the very presence of God because there's nothing greater. There's nothing more comforting. There's nothing more wonderful than being in the presence of God. So I hope that as we work through this series, as we, as we think about God's judgments, as we look at the, the world around us and say, what does God have to say about this? What does God have to say about this? What does God have to say about our pride and our accomplishments? He says, they keep you from enjoying me. And if, and if we trust his judgment on that, and we embrace humility like our, like our Savior did, if we trust his judgment on that and we look forward to the glory that's set before us, not the, maybe the glory we might enjoy this afternoon, if we can set our hearts and minds on the beauty and the wonder of what Christ has accomplished and we trust God's judgment, then we're gonna enjoy his presence more. And that's what I want. I want us to work through this really difficult, kind of confusing passage the section in Isaiah and at the end of it say, we are feel closer and more often the presence of the Lord because we trust his judgments. So would you pray with me that God would accomplish those things? Father, I thank you. Thank you so much that you speak to us. And, and as we come to difficult portions of scripture, as we wrestle with, with what's going on in a nation so far removed from us in a, in a, in a time in history that's so difficult for us to wrap our heads around, Lord, that we would trust that you've written these things down for our instruction. You would trust that you are drawing a people to yourself. Lord, I pray that you would work by your spirit this week to help us consider when we value things that would be more associated with Babylon than would be Jerusalem. Lord, I pray that you would convict us by your spirit, not so we can, we can look better, but so we can enjoy more of you. Thank you that you reveal yourself to us and that, that we do get glimpses of who you are. And we look forward to seeing you face to face for all eternity. In your name I pray, amen.